Welcome to the latest episode of the Columbia Basin Conservative Institute podcast. Very pleased to welcome a special guest to the show, uh, Chad Magendans. Made a special announcement at Roanoke Conference just a couple weeks ago that he was running for superintendent of public instruction and spoke with Chad and uh, told him we'd love to have him on the show to discuss his race. And and already here we are. So, Chad, thanks so, so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Josh. And, well... Obviously, education is a cornucopia of rich topics that we can discuss. Especially and recently, hasn't it been? Very, very much so. And it's it's gotten more and more attention over the last couple of years, particularly with COVID drawing a lot of attention to educational matters. But but first, I do want to talk a little bit about you and your background. I, I know you previously served on the Esquist School Board, and you mm-hmm. also did two terms in the State House. And much of the legislation that you proposed and, and passed, I will say, because there's an important distinction there, centered around educational issues. And now you're a full-time teacher in the Bellevue School District. So so first off, what inspired you to become involved in politics? And then second, what caused you to take such a special interest in education specifically? Well, I think it was more of a family philosophy. Um, my dad always said, you, you do your military service, you have your career and family time, and then you find a way to pay it forward. You know, community service for him was 14 years as a teacher. Uh, my mom served on the on the town council. And so I always thought of that way uh, as being a legitimate way to pay it forward. When I started, I was just a, a PTA dad. And I started testifying down in Olympia. And I started to realize we had some serious problems with school funding, the McCleary uh, situation, if you recall. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> I, I knew it was a big, hairy-ass problem to solve. And I wanted to be part of the solution. So uh, when I got on the school board, we did as much as we could with the limited control we have over the local funds there. But you realize very quickly that the decisions are made where the money spent. And so um, the year, the uh, actually the day that the so the Supreme Court ruled on McCleary, I announced my candidacy for the legislature. And as t- as it turned out, I was ranking member of the House Education Committee uh, in a year. And so I was involved with all the work groups and committees and everything that kind of led up to that negotiation, one of the four lead negotiators on it. And I was co-chair of the uh, oversight committee that reported our progress to the state, or state Supreme Court. Um, in 2018, the uh, Supreme Court validated our work, as well as some other work that I did on funding charter schools. Uh, we had some great bills. I mean, did a lot, whole, whole bunch of uh, computer science education bills, and I'm a computer science teacher right now. When I went back into the teaching track, I um, had a chance to at Microsoft, we call it eating our own dog food, where you basically, uh, it's its one thing to create policies and have an intent, but when you actually get there in the trenches and you start to do it yourself, you get a whole new perspective. Sure. And so I went through, I was one of the first to get the computer science endorsement. I got technology education as well. Got my master's at Central, which I got to tell you, being in your 50s and going back to college and sitting in a dorm, it was pretty surreal. <laughs> <laughs> but I am... Um, I've really enjoyed these last five years teaching full-time uh, as a computer science teacher in the Bellevue School District because uh, just the, uh, I gotta be honest, you know, you, you can you can set policy for a million school children, but it's the 150 that come through your classroom every day and you build those relationships and you see how the, the impact of your time with those kids uh, really kind of carries on. Uh, that's the kind of legacy that I, I want to leave as well. And so I've really enjoyed teaching. But one of the, um, one of the things that I discovered quickly is that you know, with with my history at the state level, the district level, I see these policies trickle on down to me as a teacher, and I saw the impact of them in the trenches. And man, uh, some of it was pretty rough. And I think parents saw that during COVID too. You had this little window into your kid's classroom through their laptop, and I don't think a lot of parents liked what they saw. 
And so we can go into some of the some of the things that really kind of set me off on this path uh, later. But um, I, I was convinced that I had to get involved with policy again and that we have to kind of get back on track setting priorities, uh, mainly around academic achievement instead of a lot of the other things that have distracted us from that mission. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that we're going to we're going to get into that for sure. But. So just to level set a little bit here, because I, I think our audience of this podcast is fairly politically astute, at, at least the, mm-hmm. the people that I've talked to, maybe maybe some just uh, listen for the smooth sounds of my voice. So you don't have to get too detailed, but just very basically, what is the role of the superintendent of public instruction? What does that office do? And, and importantly, what is within their power and purview and what is outside of the scope of their power and purview? Well, the Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction actually um, has over half of the state budget because schools are a large part of what we spend money on. And it makes sense because it's actually in our constitution as a paramount duty. That's the one thing we absolutely have to prioritize over everything else. And so um, th- that he's the director of the state agency that oversees our schools. And I think it's a little bit of a misnomer that it's called a superintendent. Um, when I first saw that, I thought, okay, this is the same kind of person who would run a school, school district, right? Yep, yep. You know, day-to-day operations. Well, it's not quite the same. It's a policy job. And uh, the policies um, are when you have state-sponsored, or sorry, agency-sponsored legislation, you're going to work the legislature and you're going to get, you know, someone to sponsor the bill in the Senate, someone to sponsor in the House. You're going to work it through. You're going to find the common ground that'll give you a nice bipartisan bill that'll get consensus and and work through the, the process fairly, you know, easily. And so that was something I got pretty good at when I was in Olympia. And I'll admit, I had the advantage of working in a bipartisan legislature where you had to work together. You got nothing done. Um, but you built those relationships and, you know, someone could say that I'm a sellout because I, you know, was co-sponsoring so many Democratic bills. But, you know, when we find that common ground and we can act on it, there's a bit of a kind of contract you have with the other side of the aisle that you're going to give it your best effort. And I built a reputation for doing that and, you know, following through on my commitments. And I think that's what made me so effective in that role. That's something that the super, superintendent of public instruction has to do. They have to be able to work well with the legislature to set the state statute, which is the, the policy of the state. Now, the other half of the role is to take that state policy and then enact the, the WAC, the uh, Washington Administrative Code, all the rules for districts that get much more granular than the state statute. And it calls for a lot of interpretation of the intent and making sure that's reflected when it comes to the specific rules that districts must follow in order to satisfy those state statutes. And that's another piece where I've had quite a bit of experience just because of all the the committees and advisory groups that I've served on over the years. I know um, how to look for the intent on on a bill and to try to realize it as faithfully as possible. And I know when things go sideways too. Some of the memos that I've been seeing from the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction they had no statutory basis. There were things coming down that, um, frankly, were pretty questionable. And um, I think parents were a little frustrated when, you know, there were rural districts trying to bring kids back to school. And the superintendent of public instruction was saying, we're going to cut your funding if you bring kids back. And they were telling school directors like you that if you do so, we're going to cut your director's insurance. So if anything goes wrong, you're going to be personally liable. That was not something that uh, I think parents expected. And it's not something that's in state statute. And so it was just the emergency powers of COVID that allowed that to happen. And uh, I think a lot of people are concerned that it'll happen again, the next uh, emergency that comes around. Well, one of the things that we hammer on routinely on this podcast is sort of acknowledging the political realities. And and you you touched on this a little bit just, just now with your answer. 
Um, we, we like to shy away from the magic wand type questions about what are you, what are you going to make happen when you get there? Um, mm-hmm. so, so while mm-hmm. I want to be optimistic in all likelihood, you'll be working with a Democratic, Democratic controlled house and Senate. So it'll be yeah. a little different than when you were, were la- last there. So how do you see that working? Do you, do you think that the landscape has changed very much in the last 10 years? It certainly seems it's much more polarized and a little more combative, but is, is that just, uh, my imagination? I think it's a, I think it's a, uh, symptom of one party rule. I yeah. mean, the, they have all the branches locked up as well too. Yep. So it's not just the executive and legislative branch. I think they feel very confident that anything that comes to Supreme court is going to go in their direction as well. Um, I don't know how long that'll last, but I mean, the truth is you also have to be a bit of a soldier here too. Um, I was 12 years in the military. I know how to follow orders. If the, if the law is clear, I will, I will enforce the law and I will follow through. Um, if there's opportunity for feedback or to make nuanced changes in the law, I think I can do that. Um, you know, through back channels uh, pretty effectively. And so there's always an opportunity to make changes like that. When I was in the in the House, we were in the minority of the House. And so you had to get creative in order to get things moving. Um, you couldn't always just run to the Senate anytime you wanted to get anything done. And so there's there's some skills that you pick up in order, in order to be able to work the back channels and, and find allies in, in good locations to try to get particularly things that are just... Um, nuanced tweaks and refinements of bills. Generally, you don't get a lot of resistance on that sort of thing. We've heard a lot about learning loss uh, coming out of the pandemic. And, you know, the percentage of students who are meeting standards in the core areas are, have plummeted. Uh, what yeah. would you suggest that the OSPI should be doing or, you know, more, more succinctly, what will you do in the role of OSPI to address that? There was a Seattle Times article that came out a few months ago that were, was fairly critical of the current superintendent of public instruction about um, uh, championing mediocrity and high-fiving you know, kids in the slow lane. Uh, it, was, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I learned as president of the ISQA school board is that you have to be pretty tough on yourself. You have to recognize opportunities for improvement. And uh, we were passing bonds with over 70% support during the worst parts of the, of the recessions of 2008, 2009, because we beat ourselves up. We were brutal about recognizing our opportunities for improvement. And, uh, and you can't be trying to cover up or at least even have the impression of covering up um, bad metrics. You have mm-hmm. to own those metrics and then start putting together a plan for addressing them. And I'm a big, big believer in metrics. I know that a lot of people aren't big fans of uh, high stakes testing, but I think of high stakes testing as standardized testing to help uh, evaluate metrics on how the system is working more than an individual student. And if we can see uh, particular districts that are doing well and kind of learn lessons from those districts about how we might be able to do things better statewide, I mean, that's an opportunity for improvement right there. Um, The fact that we're pulling back on standardized testing has me concerned that we're using that just to kind of cover up the fact that we don't like the results. In fact, the current superintendent of public instruction has, you know, said in in testimony that he's trying to figure out ways to do less standardized testing and to eliminate it altogether. And I think that's completely the wrong direction. One of the bills we passed when I was in the legislature was around third grade reading. And even then it was, it was obvious that you know, up to third grade, kids are learning to learning to read. And after third grade, they're reading to learn. And so it's one of those important milestones. It's like, okay, it's, we're not doing kids any favor favors if we push them along if they haven't learned to read by fourth grade. And so we have to have certain milestones. 
and you know evaluate whether the kids have the basic skills because that's going to be the foundation that they build on in future years. I think an approach like that for COVID return would have been much more effective. So we had kids who lost an entire year, some lost an entire year and a half um, because they just weren't engaged while we were back in masks. And you know some of the some of the districts were in hybrid learning, so they were doing half half the time in school and half the time at home. Um, we never evaluated these kids to determine where we could level them so that they could pick up where they left off. We just kept moving them along. And one of the worst culprits was Seattle's A's for all policy. And when Seattle did that, all the neighboring district felt, felt they had to do it too, right? The kids picked up on that right away. And, you know, some of my best performers like, well, why should I do anything now? I'm going to have an A. You know, they, they're, they're smart. You know, they know mm -hmm. how to work the system. Um, and so I had to get really creative about re-engaging these kids. I went to, you know, uh, certifications for industry recognized certifications for like Adobe and Microsoft and, you know, Unity Gaming and things like that. Things that they couldn't get just out of a transcript, but still had real measurable value after they graduated. And so, you know, there was a lot of creative work done on the part of teachers to try to re-engage those kids who, who checked out because they thought they were just going to get an A for just sitting there. You know, with their little icon on the on the screen and while they go and got a sandwich. Right. <laughs> so this is something we could do in OSPI is is have clear guidance on how districts should re-engage kids and make sure that they're leveled appropriately coming back from remote learning. And so at this point, we've been passing these kids along, along building on this rickety foundation. And you're seeing it in our in our test scores. I mean, the fact that we I mean, first of all, it was bad enough that half the kids out there were not meeting standard in math before COVID, right? And again, I was part of the effort that doubled school funding over eight years, right? I, I really wanted to see results on that investment. And we kept going down. Our NAEP scores kept going down. You know, 50% for math standard is, is horrible. But after COVID, it went down to a third. And we thought, okay, well, it'll recover after COVID. It'll just pop right back up there, right? Was it 39% now? So still not fantastic. And so it's time to look at these metrics and say, hey, listen, you know, we can't bury our hand in the sand. We have to recognize that this is an issue. And, you know, we're really doing the kids no service by just passing them along until they graduate. And then they have this, you know, massive reckoning when it comes to entering the workforce. So it's, it's being tough on ourselves again and recognizing opportunities for improvement and being fairly aggressive at making sure that kids are getting what they need to progress. Yeah, it seems the the current stance is to um, either ignore the metrics or just or just stop measuring any that that aren't positive or you know maybe celebrating the ones that are but that that's a whole or choose different metrics. I mean yeah. you can pick some metrics. Like we have the you know highest compensation in the nation right now for our teachers. That's a fantastic metric, but I don't feel like we're really get, getting a good return on that particular investment right now. Let's let's show some results in student achievement. Yeah, and especially the metric that you just mentioned um, previously on third grade reading is that's something that I've heard routinely that that is just highly correlated with finishing high school, like graduating. So um, that that's certainly something that we oh and need to be. and incarceration, racism, all all that stuff. Yeah. It's very closely tied. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the McCleary decision earlier, and you know we I, I don't think we need to dive into the whole details of the, the the court case or anything. But as you mentioned, you were part of the team that worked on the the ultimate fix to that decision and, and helping fund our schools. And as you mentioned, doubled our state funding for schools in the last uh, decade. Yeah. Um, you know, what do you think about the current state of funding? You know, are, are they woefully underfunded still? Like, is it, 
is it a matter there are definitely of funding some tweaks at this we need point? to make yeah. uh, when we created the prototypical school model um there were some frankly some things that really should have should have been evaluated a little bit higher uh, i think we're still understaffed when it comes to counselors and nurses in particular uh, material supplies, uh, you know, MSOC, what we call it, and operational costs. That's a little bit under what the actual costs are. But those are tweaks we can do to the prototypical school model. When you actually look at the amount that we're spending on our schools right now, I think it's appropriate. Um, we do have a relatively high cost of living as a state. And so we have to spend more than some other states. But at this point, I think we need to focus more on policy. Um, I think the funding is there. Um, ironically, one of the things that I fought hard for when I was in the McCleary group is to ensure that the money followed the student, right? So, um, and, and I'll admit, I was kind of setting the stage for a future where the money might follow the student to a private school yeah. or something like that, right? Um, I don't think we're going to get vouchers anytime soon in the state of Washington, but I was thinking along those lines. And um, now that we've seen such dramatic um, drops in enrollment, uh, we're starting to see some some districts start to panic a bit, I mean, particularly mine. Um, so the Bellevue School District saw a 10% enrollment drop. Statewide, it was slightly less than 4%, but we saw a lot more. And, you know, you can, you know, you can guess why. I mean, we have a lot of parents with resources and we have a lot of pr private schools in the area. And so they had options and they exercised them. Uh, if you're out in the middle of rural Washington, you probably don't have nearly as many options to uh, to consider. And so... Um, now these districts, we, we actually shut down three elementary schools last year. We're looking at closing down a middle school as well sometime soon. And, uh, and yeah, it's getting a lot tougher to balance a budget when your enrollment is dropping. And this has been a high growth area for you know, as long as I can remember. And I moved here around 1990, right? So um, it's, uh, it's tough for them to adapt. And uh, the idea of doing layoffs and uh, you know, closing down perfectly good schools. I mean, a lot of these schools are relatively new. Um, and yet that's what you have to do when your enrollment's declining. And, you know, you could use it as an opportunity to kind of reevaluate um, what's keeping kids in the district and what would bring more back. And I think um, from my perspective, and this is just a personal perspective, um, I think you're seeing a lot of things happening at school that had conservative parents concerned. You know, they saw that window into the classroom and they're like, okay, you know, I agreed to send my kids to school because they were getting you know, academics, that they were getting career skills, that they were getting basic civics like you would get on a citizenship exam. But a lot of the partisan ideology, that was not part of the deal. And so just in the same way that when we were working on bipartisan legislation, we had to find that common ground, the one that every, the part that everybody could agree on. I think public schools have that role as well. They have to serve the role that everyone can agree on. And so, you know, you need to be looking at, you know, what is the core mission of public schools. And I think it's that it's academic achievement, it's um, you know career skills, and it's basic civics. Beyond that, we're getting into shaky territory where you're gonna you're gonna start scaring away a lot of your potential customers. And it isn't really that you know that simple because it's effectively a monopoly. And so what you're getting is a lot of very frustrated parents who are your customers and they're they're visiting their school boards, like you know, you see as a school board member, and they're voicing their frustration because that's pretty much all they can do if they're out in a rural area where they don't have a lot of options, or maybe they just don't have the money to take your kids to private school, or they don't have someone at home who could homeschool. Not everybody can can you know solve their solution that way. So they get active, they get on the school boards, they get the, the squeaky wheel, and that's how they voice their frustration. 
But I think it's our responsibility for people who are involved at all levels of public education to be listening and constantly evaluating how we can make a, a more welcoming environment for all families. And I'm not just talking about, just talking about you know, families from different ethnicities, races, religions, but also political idea, ideology. So you know, we've seen a lot of attention throughout the country, as you mentioned, coming out of COVID towards our schools and our school systems. And a lot of that has manifested in some you know, culture war type battles that mm -hmm. have received especially a lot of media attention. And we've seen these battles that you mentioned at school board meetings and, and so on. And while I think there there has been some real pernicious stuff out there, I think a, a lot of it can be can draw a little bit too much focus from I'll say you know we as conservatives or Republicans or the right broadly speaking, and have allowed those culture war type issues to become the focus rather than academics mm -hmm. and student outcomes. So how do you plan to approach not just being like the anti woke candidate, but yeah. you know really really focusing on. Um, academics, because I, I think that, you know, with parents being a very, I think, key and available demographic, they're going to want to hear about how we may plan to promote an agenda that is geared towards their practical concerns for the hopes for their children, and, and not just how you're going to battle the, the wokeness that's in there. So uh, yeah, how are you focusing your campaign in that regard? Well, I think we're, we're finding that Parents are actually very engaged in the local communities and they want their local schools to succeed. And they really don't care much about partisan politics. And so a lot of, you know, the, you know, woke stuff and things like that. I mean, it's very sensationalist. I think it makes for, you know, great talk radio. But um, when it comes to actually being in the trenches, um, I don't know that that's necessarily what, what parents are focusing on mm -hmm. right now. They want to make sure that their kids get the basics. And if the kids aren't getting the basics, then they start to question all the other things that are drawing the attention of schools. So the, um, the challenge, I think, is to re-engage parents as parents and not as members of a political party. And the system is set up to engage that way. But this is a nonpartisan office. And I want to run it like a nonpartisan office. I really want to keep the politics, the partisan politics specifically, out of this particular race. And so if you look at, for example, Initiative 10, uh, uh, 2081, the Parents' Bill of Rights that, that's going to be on the ballot in November, most of the people who signed that um, were not Republicans. Right. They were parents who yep. were concerned about parental rights. And so that's something that I think resonates across you know, all political ideologies. You know, we have a constitutional right, and you know, it's been highlighted in Supreme Court case law, you know, through deck through uh, you know, back to at least 100 years, uh, where, where they say that um, parents have a fundamental, fundamental right to the care, custody, and control of their children, and the government will not interfere with that right unless the parent is deemed unfit. And there's a due process to being deemed unfit. And this kind of implicit guilt that, uh, that parents can't be trusted with certain information or parents, you know, that, that's the, that the student's uh, position trumps the parent's position on these, these issues. I think is un unconstitutional. Um, when we got a memo from OSPI that said that we had to actively deceive parents about the names and genders that their children were using in school, I, I just saw that as clearly unconstitutional. And I have, I, I consider my parents to be partners in this job. I have 150 kids coming through my class. I can't possibly know them as well as their parents do. 
And I assume that all parents are good parents who have their child's best interests at heart until I have evidence otherwise. And I'm a mandatory reporter. If I have evidence otherwise, people are going to know about it. But until then, I want to work in partnership with parents and make sure that they're tuned in to what's happening in the class. Let me give an example of what I do. When we came back from COVID, we had that hybrid period. At least we did in, in the Bellevue School District. We were bringing half the kids in and then half the kids were at home and they would swap every other day. So they put these really nice cameras in our classroom. And so I would you know, have kids virtually attending the class and everything was recorded. So if they missed something, they could go back and, and watch it again. And I do a lot of demos in computer science. So it's, it's very natural for them to want to do that. Um, when we stopped doing hybrid, I kept those recordings going because I wanted to make sure that the kids had access to everything that we did in the classroom. And probably even more importantly, that the parents had access to everything we were doing in the classroom. That level of transparency, I think, is appropriate for a public school. Um, maybe it's just because I'm used to it as, a, as an elected official down Olympia, where everything is on TVW, right? We, we, we do our work in the public eye. And so there was this interesting situation where teachers had their salaries being completely transparent, but what we were teaching kids was not at all transparent, unless we had those little windows that we got during COVID. And so these are the kind of things that we can do to reassure parents that they have a window into the classroom, that they can be there anytime they want to see what their kids are being exposed to. And if they see something objectionable, they can bring it to, to, the, to the school board, probably someone like you, right, and say exactly how they feel about it. Now, what does it mean for teachers? It means we've got to be on our game all the time. And, you know, 12 years in the military, sometimes it's hard for me to go a full day without some profanity slipping out, right? You know, I got to be on all the time. And it's good. It, it makes me a better teacher. And I'm, I'm totally comfortable with that. But some teachers might not like it. And, uh, you know, I can imagine if you tried to suggest to surgeons that they have cameras in the OR, you know, they would push back very hard against that because there's kind of this fear of liability if they, if they make a mistake. I mean, we're all human. We are going to make mistakes. It's inevitable. Uh, but at least... I understand better now why law enforcement likes body cams, because, um, you know, it's it's so often these days that it's a he said, she said kind of situation. And, you know, we, we don't give teachers the benefit of the doubt or law enforcement the benefit of the doubt, nor honestly do I think we should. You know, when we can go to an objective record of what happened, get the full context, that's that's what's going to surface the, the real event. And so that's why I feel feel strongly about that level of transparency. Well, an another area of interest that I I have become more and more in focused on is uh, workforce preparation and preparing students for a future career. And, you know, not just giving you their diploma and kicking them out the door and, uh, and moving them along like, like cattle. So what can we do to promote more like apprenticeship opportunities and, and like actual job training? Because while I hear activities at the federal level, especially trying to start pushing, you know, essentially junior college. So suddenly we have people who are going to be 20 years old who may have never had a job before. And yeah. when we have minimum wage rising, especially in the state of Washington, it's the highest in, in the nation. So how can we get our youth, our children, our students just better prepared for a career through internships or or getting in the workforce, given those realities of what we have to battle against, such as minimum wage? Yeah, the minimum wage um, increases have really crippled any opportunity that kids have to get those summer jobs that were just a staple of their experience beforehand. And yeah, I still have some kids who have jobs uh, during the summer and throughout the year, but it's it's becoming increasingly rare. Um, as a computer science teacher, I'm also a career and technical education teacher. 
And so it's been a big focus of mine to make sure that work skills, specifically 20, 21st century work skills, are incorporated into the, into the curriculum. In fact, that, that actually is a requirement of OSPI now, and I actually make it about 20% of my grade, which is to evaluate their career skills and make sure that the level of professional, professionalism, communication skills, working on a team, time management, these things are, are part of that grade. And so that's setting them up for success once they get that first job. But I want them to get that first job and keep them employed you know, throughout their lives. And one of the things I did when I was in the legislature, I dropped uh, a little budget proviso. And they don't talk about it that much in the legislature. People always pass bills, but there's another way to get stuff done where you just sort of slip stuff into the budget. It's just a little line item, right? And at that point, you know, Andy Hill was Ways and Means Chair and Ross Hunter was Appropriations Chair in the House. You know, Both ex-Microsofties like me. And so I was able to slip a little item in there that looked at the first 10 years median salary um, for all the different majors that our four-year universities provide. And then the associates programs that we have in our community, uh, community colleges, okay? And then the industry certifications and apprenticeship programs. And I, I know you're not going to be surprised at the results. The apprenticeship programs and industry certification programs did very well. In fact, I think it was a huge eye-opener for all of our career counselors who, you know, let's be faced, let's be honest about it. Just about everybody in public education has a master's degree. They've been They've, they've been to graduate school. They've, they've spent a lot of time in college. And so there's kind of this implicit bias about, you know, us pitching opportunities for kids and that we want to kind of push them towards college. But, man, if you have the wrong major in college, you'll be paying off a lot of debt with lot, not much to prove for it. So, um, you know, being able to identify those majors that do have the ability to recover that investment fairly quickly, I think, helped a lot. But take a look at the um, the certifications that I was offering these kids during COVID, Right. We were getting Microsoft Office certifications, a whole bunch of you know language-specific ones like Java and Python. Unity, which is a game development uh, platform, the most popular one in the world right now. Um, and so these are things. Oh, Adobe as well. So kids were getting these industry certifications, and when they would when they would pass, I would send a little note back to their parents, and I'd say, Hey, listen, you know, the uh, Education Research Data Center, which was you know what what I had given this budget provisor to, looked at this and found that in in my particular field. For the first 10 years, which is all they looked at, it, I assume it would apply after that as well, the median salaries were higher for an industry certification that they got for free in high school than if they had spent two years getting an associate's degree. And it's just, it's a no-brainer. And the kids can, you know, if they take a couple times to pass the test, that's, that's no problem either. I mean, they just need to get certified. And so once they see that, okay, I have a, a certification in hand, now I can apply for a summer job or an internship. And let's look at, listen, I'm, I want to work for a game company. I'm Unity certified. I can walk in the door and say, hey, listen, I, I'm not just, you know, aspirational. I have performed and it's in, in a standardized form that you can recognize. And so we get a lot of mileage out of that. We also do a lot of internship programs. Before I was at uh, Bellevue's, Bellevue, College, or Bellevue uh, School District, I was at Isqua School District. We had the, uh, the Gibson Eck program, which is a big picture school. We actually have a big picture school in, in Bellevue as well. And two days out of the week in the big picture schools, they spend out in the field with mentors in a workplace. So they actually are only in the classroom three days a week. And I think that's a fantastic program because a lot of kids, they're just not sit and get types. You know, they just don't have the attention span for a lot of that. Frankly, a lot of adults don't either, right? So if they can limit their, their sitting time and actually get out in the field and get some hands-on experience and see the relevancy of what they're learning in the classroom, it clicks for them and they, they exceed. They do really well. 
Well, yeah, all that sounds fantastic. And if, if this was a visual podcast, people would see how much I was nodding and smiling along with all that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, you know, we have sort of this um, one size fits all approach to education. So breaking out of that can be can be difficult. But um, how, how do we scale something like that? Because individual school districts can do that and should and you know, all about local control here. But um, is that something that in the role of OSPI that you can do more to promote those sorts of opportunities? Yeah, so uh, workspace, work, workforce internships is an area that, when I was working with uh, Drew Hansen on House Bill 1813, which created the computer science endorsement and the learning standards and things like that, one of the things we had intended to do was to create an internship program with that. So that, you know, small and medium businesses that aren't, you know, they're not the Microsofts and Amazons and Googles, you know, they don't have the overhead to be able to run a program right. of their own. And the regulatory overhead for running an internship program is still pretty substantial. And so we were going to create an internship program that was state-driven in partnership with Monster.com for actually you know, placement. And uh, some of that did come to fruition. The Monster.com did work with the Workforce Development Board to actually get some of that infrastructure in place. But really what I'm looking for is a new policy that would allow uh, internships to be lower overhead on small and medium businesses. So they wouldn't have to deal with some of the you know, minimum wage standards, the, um, the insurance requirements, or at least you know, streamline that so it's something they could do regularly uh, without having to employ an entire section of their HR department to, uh, to address it. So um, it's, you got to think about it as, as an investment in a future workforce, really. I mean, the kids are coming there. They don't know a whole lot, right? So the idea of spending two months training a new employee that you're going to have to give up in two and a half months. Yep. I mean, that's that's a hard value proposition for a business. And businesses have been struggling quite a bit lately. So they're, they're really not up to taking a lot of risks right now. So I think the burdens on us in Olympia to, to lessen that overhead and, you know, minimize the risk of taking on somebody in a work a workplace where they're going to spend most of their time just training them. Is there significant opposition to that in Olympia or is it just a matter of prioritizing? Well, I think they're sensitive to the fact that if you have carve outs for a lot of the a lot of the um, minimum wage requirements and things like that, that there will be exploitation. Um, and these programs are pretty well supervised. Uh, I mean, the mentors that arrange for all the placement of internships for the big picture program, I mean, they were hands on. They were working with these people regularly and they knew exactly what was happening for these kids. Plus the kids are returning and, and talking about it quite a bit as well. So I think there's enough transparency in the process that you're not going to get, you know, exploitation of child labor or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do want to touch a little bit on some, uh, you know, the, the political side of it, the, uh, <laughs> the campaign side of it. So obviously you live in King County, which I think is, is a, a benefit, um, to, yeah. <laughs> to, to running, um, but beyond that, yeah, how do you how do you see the partisan politics playing out in this race? Because as you mentioned, you know, a, a role like this should be essentially nonpartisan. But if people are going to see an RD next to the ballot, how do you promote that message? Because as you said earlier, the the specific initiative that deals with parental rights and several of the other initiatives are like straight out of the Republican playbook, and these are popular, like, you know, 70, 30 issues, if not yeah. higher in some cases. So how do you tie that message to, and with your race and beyond, just would love to get your, your thoughts on how we do this 
to really market that these are the Republican ideals and that's what you're voting for. It's it's not some scary like Donald Trump or, you know, you're going to be doing something about <laughs> abortion policy in the OSPI or something like that. So is that something yeah. that you uh, feel confident that you can have that make that message and communicate it with the voters? Well, historically, you know, any Republicans who have won statewide office have been from the west side of the, of the state. Um, particularly the Puget Sound area. And that's because I just logistically, it's it's very difficult to win a race unless you have at least 35% of King County. Yep. Just, that, that's where the concentration of the population is. And so um, if there is partisan politics, which inevitably there will be some, right? For example, I assume the teachers union is probably going to put out some hit pieces. Uh, what time is it? I think I'm expecting it any moment right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they they obviously, you know, worked very closely with me. I felt like I, I did them a solid by uh, doubling state funding over eight years. Um, but, for example, the um, the bill that I ran to um, to remedy the, school, the uh, charter school uh, fix that was yep. also yep. validated by the Supreme Court in 2018, uh, they, they didn't like that much at all. Right. So I expect them to be running some hit pieces against me. Um, they're going to try to portray me as an ultra mega extremist, yep. right? Yep. If you know me, that's that's pretty funny, right? Because uh, everyone kind of recognized that I was the most liberal member of my caucus, especially on social issues. When it came to voting education, more often than not, I was voting with the uh, with the Democrats, right? So uh, I'm a fiscal hard ass, but when it comes to uh, when it comes to education, I see both sides of the aisle, and so that's what I think needs to be in this place. It should not be a partisan position. Just like I feel like. Secretary of State's office needs to be completely objective and nonpartisan, as well as the auditor. I mean, these jobs require a certain objectivity, and you need to prove that objectivity. And um, I can prove it because I can point to uh, four uh, House races where the Seattle Times has endorsed me every time. And they've said some very flattering things about my knowledge of education policy and my ability to work across the aisle and, and you know, work in a bipartisan nature. Build, build those coalitions and find that common ground exactly what this job entails. Um, the, the King County, uh, Municipal League of King County has always given me an outstanding rating. And that's a very rare thing. They, they do those very sparsely. And very rarely will you get someone who just only gets outstanding ratings the entire time. So that's going to kind of, you know, knock their claim uh, a little bit when they try to paint me as this extremist. You know, clearly a lot of King County who has, who's looked into this issue and, you know, are re relatively objective measures of uh, just how central a particular character has been, um, they're going to you know, dis discredit that particular claim. You can also look at my voting record. Um, one of the things that I do on the side, I, I write these apps for mobile um, that allow you to do canvassing and fundraising as part of Voter Science, which is a, a company that I joined a few years back. And uh, one of the things I do as a pet project, I have this, this website called uh, Whipstat. And it's just all the public data you can get and then kind of packaged in, a where, in an area to help you kind of analyze how people are voting and things like that. One of the things I do is um, the partisan leaderboard. And what I do is actually you look at all of the votes on the floor and see how often that particular member is voting with their party versus not voting with their party. And to give you a, an idea of exactly how independent they are in their votes. Okay. And especially if it's a very polarized partisan issue, right? So if one party went one side, one party went the other, you can read through the methodology there. But I've actually got the most nonpartisan voting record of my district going back as far as we have the data, which is back to 1990. So um, I've got a pretty good track record backing up the claim that I'm an independent 
uh, voter on the floor record, and then I work in a bipartisan fashion. Or, or, I was going to ask if you have any uh, secret photos of yourself with Donald Trump that they might uncover, but I guess no. th this day and age, <laughs> they, could the just, Sorry. they could just Photoshop <laughs> you in, and I'm, I'm sure that might happen anyway. So, um, Well, I, I do want to ask uh, you about any recommendations you might have for someone that is interested in education policy or just learning more about education broadly? Are there any books you recommend or possibly any websites or news sources that you would uh, steer someone towards? So I'm a big fan of doing versus reading. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just the CTE side of me yep. kind of coming through. Um, one of the things that was most effective for me was when I was um, a parent, I joined the PTA and I was a legislative advocate. And every school is going to have a legislative advocate. Sometimes they call it ledge chair sometimes. But it's basically the person they send to the um, to the uh, legislative advocacy um, meeting statewide every year. And um, the Ledge Assembly is, is the best course you could have about how to work legislation in Olympia that I've ever seen. So you'll you'll come up with a list of uh, potential resolutions in favor of particular measures. Okay, and then you have the opportunity to kind of make your case to all of the legislative assembly and you only have a certain amount of time to do it, right? So it's like testifying down Olympia. And then sometimes you have to kind of like divvy up the messages and, and work as a team. And so you'll you'll kind of build a coalition that'll work together to try to promote a particular measure. And then the entire assembly will vote on their top five. And so every year they come up with a top five list of, of le legislative priorities. Now, the second part is now you got those priorities, you have to go down Olympia and you have to convince people. You have to find somebody who's willing to sponsor your bill. You have to find someone on the other side of the aisle. So it's a bipartisan bill. You have to have somebody drop a companion bill in the other chamber. So that you got two potential avenues to success. And then when they're heard in the committee, well, maybe you have to kind of knock on the door of the chair and make sure it actually gets a committee hearing and then go down there and testify in the committee hearing and then walk through the entire process again on the other side of the, of the rotunda so the other chamber signs on. And it's just a fantastic way to learn how the process works because it is a fairly complex process. And you, there's just no substitute for just doing it. And I think the Ledge Assembly is one of the best training uh, opportunities I've ever had. And it was a great prep for going into school director position. You know, WASDA does something similar. Um, frankly, I don't think it was as good as what the PTA was doing, but it's, it's very similar. And uh, once you kind of figure out how things work, and actually after you've had your like first testimony in a, uh, in a hearing, I think all of a sudden you start to see the pathways to success. And then you can start getting clever about like working back channels and things like that. But it's it's a very informative process. And I think it makes you a much better citizen that you can uh, understand how the system works and fire on all cylinders as much as possible. Well, that's uh, fantastic advice. And so I do want to steer people towards voteforchad.com. That's the number four, voteforchad.com. You can go there, find all about Chad's background. Uh, impressive resume, I'll say, is on there. And uh, you can find all of his social media links, so Facebook, Twitter, or X, excuse me, and um, some some really fun and interesting YouTube videos as well. You've done a, a series there. So, And, of course, if you are so compelled, you can make a donation to, to Chad's campaign there. So, um, Always appreciate it, yeah. yes. <laughs> and uh, so thank you so much for your time. And um, if you find your way out here, I know you mentioned uh, you, you're – Considering the idea of a motorcycle road trip hitting all the counties, so if you find your way yeah. out to Eastern Washington, please look us up, and we'd uh, glad to glad to host you for something. I'm sure I'll be out there soon. All right, thanks so much for your time, Chad. Thanks, Josh.